Welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor here at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in a whole host of ways, including co-hosting the 30 Minutes in the New Testament podcast and working with the relations and development team at 1517. Good to be here with you again, as each week we gather to look at God's two words throughout all of the scriptures, both law and Gospel, what we do is look at an upcoming passage from the uh, upcoming Sunday's lectionary texts and dissect it to try and see where God's two words are speaking to us. And so this week we're going to be looking at specifically the epistle text. But before we get there, of course, what I like to do is just do a brief review of the rest of the texts in the lectionary so we get a sense of the surrounding. And if there's anything I could talk, I could say the sixth Sunday after Pentecost is about, based on all the different passages, it really is that the Lord is our strength, that that in the final analysis, we don't have anything to owe to ourselves, but in fact, are indebted to God entirely for any strength we might have as Christians. And so when you get to the Psalm, Psalm 123, you're going to see really what's portrayed as strength for us even when we're needy. As the psalm says in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. And so we really never leave that posture of always recognizing our need for his mercy. Uh, indeed, the cry of the tax collector, Have mercy on me, uh, the sinner, by the way, in Greek it's the sinner, really never stops being our cry when you really think about it. You move on to Ezekiel chapter 2, which really just depicts Ezekiel being called into his ministry as a prophet. And you really do get the sense that Ezekiel is going to go through a hard time. Indeed, the rest of the book shows him going through struggles. But part of the reason that is, is because God says a lot of people are going to reject you. There's going to be a lot of rebelliousness. The house of Israel is rebellious, he says over and over and again. And so there's this sense in, in which uh, Ezekiel is standing against the whole country proclaiming the word of God. And yet he does have strength coming directly from the Lord, even as he is alone in his ministry. And then Mark 6, 1 through 13 depicts Jesus being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. He prepares his disciples to go out on mission, telling them that they indeed too will face rejection. And yet, once again, we are given strength in even the rejection, even as we go through the rubbish and the filth and the slime and the muck and the booze that might come our way as ambassadors for Christ out in the world. So those are the surrounding texts. The text we're going to specifically look at is, well, a text you're probably very familiar with from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which if I could boil it down is really about strength in weakness. And the picture I've chosen to illustrate this is a picture, of course, of one of my favorites of Rick and Dick Hoyt. Uh, the father for years has taken his son through a triathlon each year and when I think about the strength that we get from the Lord, I sort of feel like we're in that position that that indeed we may not be we can't do it on our own. But God, in his faithfulness to us, can take us the full way, all the way to the finish line, as he promises over and over again in his word. And so let's pick it up a little context for 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, St. Paul spends the bulk of this letter really defending his ministry against those who call themselves super apostles. I know I make fun of it all the time. Every time I hear it, I think it's the silliest name in the world. Uh, nevertheless, that's a, apparently what they were going by. Well, Paul was an apostle, but we're 
super apostles. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's quite ridiculous. But nevertheless, that is what he was up against. And they were prone to boasting about all their gifts all the time. And Paul really doesn't want to do this. He's not comfortable doing it. But in this passage, a little before chapter 12 and into chapter 12, Paul goes, goes ahead and plays their game. He says, all right, fine. You, if, you, if you insist on boasting, fine. I'll, I'll share with you a little bit of the reasons or some of the reasons that I have to boast. And indeed, he does have a lot. He's been persecuted. He's gone through struggles for the faith. He is born a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's got all the reason in the world to boast about his credentials. And yet, as Paul will say over and over and over again about these various boasts, he counts them all as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And that's really what we're getting to today. So first, he begins playing this game in chapter 12 by boasting about, well, really quite an extraordinary supernatural experience. He says, quote, verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, it's interesting to know Paul's use of language here. It would sound like he's talking about a different person. But most scholars agree that actually Paul is talking about himself and he's talking about it in a way that suggests it's a different person because, well, frankly, it shows the discomfort that Paul has in boasting at all. What Paul is saying here, and, and maybe, I mean, this could be as likely a, uh, a scenario as any other, it could have been that one of the times that Paul nearly was stoned to death or, or was beaten terribly, that he may have had what today we kind of are used to calling a near-death experience in which God indeed transported him to the heavenly realm and indeed showed him things that were so glorious that he couldn't even utter them. And in fact, he doesn't. He doesn't go on to describe any of the things that he's seen. Nevertheless, he has every reason based on that to boast. I mean, if he wanted to show his credentials like, hey, how many of you have ever been to heaven? Well, I have. And yet, Paul will not do it. He, he just can't go there with them. He mentions it, but he doesn't want to get dragged down in the mud with them. And here's why. Here's why you don't want to boast. Verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, Paul says, I really do have things to boast about. I've experienced some amazing things. God is, I mean, after all, I'm the guy who Jesus appeared to on the road to Damascus and knocked off his horse. I mean, come on, I have that. But I refrain from it, Paul says, and this is the key, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul wants to avoid the trap that always comes with boasting, which is you inevitably exaggerate, you inevitably puff yourself up, you inevitably come off as sounding arrogant, conceited, or proud. Indeed, if you think about where boasting comes from, well, of course, it comes from the flesh. And what, dear friends, inflames the flesh? 
Well, Romans 7, 5 tells us it is the law. Yes, I know it's contrary to what we might naturally think. We think that if we get too much grace that we'll just sin so that grace can abound. But no, Paul says actually the law increases our desire to sin. It really is sort of the age-old sort of cliche illustration, but any of you who have had children know that if you tell a two-year-old no, their first inclination is to say yes and to run in the opposite direction of where you're telling them to go. There's something about the commands. There's something about being told we cannot do something or we must do something that causes our flesh to rebel. Now, since the law inevitably insists on measuring up, what we end up doing is playing the comparison game with other people to try and justify our goodness or our righteousness. It is inevitable. It's unavoidable when you're playing according to the metrics of the law, when you're living under the legalistic system of the law, you will always, always do this. And that in turn will inevitably lead to pride, a.k.a. boasting, or despair. Pride under a false delusion that you actually are something special, or despair because you recognize you're not. This is always the way it goes when one is living under the law. Thus, the Pharisees, who were living under the law par excellence, I mean, they were really good at it, were quite filled with boasting and pride and well, we're quite puffed up by their apparent righteousness, or at least what they thought was righteousness. Paul knows that if we boast in anything other than Christ as our strength, we will inevitably fall. It's only a matter of time. And so Paul continues to keep me from being conceited. That's, that's, he does, there's the tendency. He knows it. It, based on the revelations he's had, he, he might get conceited. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, of course, anytime we come across a discussion about this or come across this passage, there's always curiosity on our part as to what in the world this thorn in the flesh is. And there's no shortage of Bible scholars and various other people that have tried to put forth their best guess. What we do know from the text that is abundantly clear about this thorn is that it was a messenger of Satan sent to harass him to keep him from becoming conceited. Beyond that, there's literally no biblical information. None point zero percent. If anybody tells you they got more, they don't. What's the speculations? Well, I mean, we can go over it, but we're not going to get a clear answer. The early church was quite fond of the idea that uh, Paul had some physical ailments uh, for in the early part, early church. I mean, with some of the church fathers, the suggestion was was made that he had ter uh, terrible migraines or terrible headaches. Uh, others suggested poor eyesight based on the, the fact that at the end of Galatians, it, it seems that he's alluding to the fact that he had poor eyesight, maybe. Uh, and he writes with his own pen in big letters, he says. And so maybe that suggests that he was afflicted with terrible problems with his eyes. There is some some reason to believe that could be the case. 
Uh, others, especially during the Middle Ages, it was almost sort of taken for granted that, that the thorn in Paul's flesh was a struggle with a particular sin. And in fact, in the Middle Ages, they tended to say that it was lust, that it was something sexual that Paul was struggling with. And then others have said, well, it might just be another way of describing the various ways that Paul was persecuted. And lending itself to that is, of course, verse 10, where Paul describes various persecutions and hardships he goes through and says that he'll boast in those instead of boasting in the glorious experiences he has had. And of course, the more modern version of or more modern suggestion is that Paul was plagued by the, by SpongeBob SquarePants, constantly asking him, hey, Paul, how you doing? What are you doing? What do you want? What are you writing? Letter, Paul. And that that was the thorn in the flesh. Of course, uh, that is meant to be really not even very funny, but nevertheless meant to be humorous. And so we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. The point is, I don't think we need to know. I don't think it's important. All we need to know is the purpose of it, that God allowed it, even though Paul had pleaded three times for it to be gone, God allowed it. God said, no, I don't want you to get puffed up. I don't want you to fall into the trap of those who boast according to the law. I want you to remain boasting about the gospel. And indeed, that's what we see. Boasting according to the gospel means boasting Yes, indeed, as strange as it might seem, boasting in our weaknesses. In case you don't know who that is, that's Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a social scientist and researcher and TED Talker. She's done a whole bunch of stuff, great writer, etc. But she has this quote where she says, vulnerability is the birthplace of everything we're hungering for. I love that quote. And indeed, there's a sense in which Paul has owned this, owned this recognition that instead of pretending we're strong, the actual key to strengthening life is admitting we're weak. This is what God said to Paul when he pleaded with him to take away the thorn. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, complete, finished, telos. It's the same word Jesus used at the cross when he said it is finished. God's power is made perfect, finished in weakness. So Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is the stunning sort of reversal way that the Christian chooses to live or that the Christian is forced to live that God has set it up in such a way that when we acknowledge our need, when we acknowledge our weaknesses, that's where we actually find strength because it's the grace of God who supplements everything we need. Again, I say this over and over again, growth in the Christian life is never independence. It's always greater dependence. So in Christ, we find our strength so we don't hide from admitting our weaknesses. Now, and so that might mean something like talk like unabashedly, not pretending that we're immune from persecutions or hardship or struggle. We go through those things. It also even means, yes, not, not glorying in our sin, but feeling free to admit that we're sinners. Yes. Yes, because that reminds us all the more every single day as we repent and come to the Lord in confession that he's our only hope. Yes, 
We can boast in our weaknesses to the degree that we boast in Christ more because Christ is sufficient to forgive us of all of our sins and to heal us one day of all of our maladies. Indeed, as this meme shows, there is a sense in which we're free to take the mask off before God and even before our neighbors and say, who's behind all my problems? Well, it turns out I can take responsibility at least for a lot of them. And so Paul says the famous words, when I am weak, then I am strong. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the same is true for you and I. The same is true for us each and every day. When we grow independence, when we come dependent, not independent, dependent, acknowledging our need daily for forgiveness, for empowerment, for guidance, that's where the strength is found, Christian. And that's where your strength will be found for the rest of this week. Until we meet again next Tuesday, I hope God rich, richly blesses you this week and guides you. And I look forward to seeing you again in a few days.